0: Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact or donate. Previous guests on the show have included Roland Smith, Michael Beck, and Adrian Reeves. You could go back and listen to those episodes and more. But today's guest is Mark DeMoz. Mark is a thought-leading writer and recognized champion of the multi-ethnic church movement. Mark planted Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas in 2001, where he continues to serve as directional leader. He co-founded the Mosaic's global network with Dr. George Yancey and launched the nonprofit Vine and Village. Mark's latest book is The Coming Revolution in Church Economics. We have a fantastic conversation around diversifying income streams for greater community impact, creating a multi-ethnic team and church, incarnational missions, and more. Enjoy the conversation. This episode is brought to you by All Nations Kansas City. Have you ever felt wholly discontent that one-third of the world doesn't know Jesus? That the church as we know it won't reach all peoples on earth and that it's hard to find ways to use your gifts for the kingdom of God? Well, you're not alone. We feel it too. With 30 years of experience igniting movements to Jesus around the world and committed to following the lead of the Holy Spirit, all nations has gifted trainers and coaches with time in the trenches. Do you want to make disciples in hard places? Do you want to join a like-minded community? And are you tired of compromising for the status quo? Then join us on The Leading Edge. Go to allnations.us to learn more. All right, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming. Yeah, John, great to be with you. Yeah, it's going to be good. Um, You know, usually what I'd like to do is I like to to warm people up, have them tell their story a little bit, but uh, I think we could dive straight into the deep end with you and you'll be all right. So, this is my question: Is if you could go into a community, say a community that is you know poor spiritually, they have poverty of relationship, poverty of economics, um, and you would go into that community, what is the approach to see the see kingdom life happen in that place? Yeah that's a great question. Well again Josh sorry to interrupt you when you're welcoming
1: me. I'm just excited <laughs> to be with you and it was great to spend time with you recently in Orlando yeah, at the Exponential yeah. conference with the Forge America folks and uh, anyway, it's a great question. It's what we've been doing for 21 years literally here in the inner city of Little Rock when I left the uh, American Mega Church if you will after 18 years as a student ministries pastor in that environment uh I Uh, came to the urban center of Little Rock Uh, at the time. This is 2001, uh, 30% out or below poverty, highest violent crime in the Mm. city, 66% of kids without dads in the home with a uh, vision of what Christianity they would call three years later, a big dream in Little Rock. Mm. And the dream was this, could diverse men and women will themselves to walk, work, and worship God together as one, in order to declare a credible gospel of God's love, hope, peace for all people, not just some. At the time, 92.5% of churches in the United States were segregated by race and class, failing to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. Fortunately, after uh, macro work over 20 years, largely led collectively by the Mosaic's global network, that number is now uh, 77%. So in other words 23% of churches in the united states it's certainly on the evangelical side mainline is lagging behind now have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership that is just gets you in the door that is yeah. not the end yeah. game that's just a starting point but why i say all that is because the question is how do you uh, uh how do you uh come into a community under-resourced underserved yep. and actually make a difference not just spiritually if, if you will, but also in terms of social, economics, financial, uh, advancing the common good, which, yep. by the way, in our line of thinking is all spiritual. Right. Uh, in other words, if we're feeding people and we don't, quote, preach the gospel, that is spiritual. Like, it, you know, that's yeah. that's what. It's. all right. So long way to say number one is we have to de- build build a healthy, multi-ethnic community of faith. Uh, the church is the anchor for everything, in my opinion. And so we build a healthy multi-ethnic community of faith, which means that diverse men and women at the very top of the organization share responsible authority, direction, vision, quality of, of position, not just quantity of people. So that's number one. Number two, that you also need, in my opinion, in our, our philosophy of ministry, you need then also to develop a separate nonprofit. Uh, alongside the church. So think two sisters that live in the same house. You have the healthy Mm multi-ethnic church, which is a nonprofit, uh, but really focused more on the spiritual game, if you will, in traditional sense, evangelism, discipleship, small groups, visiting people in the hospital when they're sick, marrying and burying folks. Okay. But then that second uh, arm is a nonprofit that's focused on meeting the material, physical, financial, social needs of a specifically defined community. In our case, that's a 32,000-person zip code. and Why you need that nonprofit is because uh, that nonprofit, when it's not a church, can attract local, state, and federal grants, the giving mm-hmm. and donations of other churches, resourcing from other churches, including people, in ways that a church is not able to do. Mm-hmm. So if you just establish a church, uh, even with a heart for the community, apart from that arm, that second nonprofit, that uh, that additional sister, if you will— Um, you will not be able from a financial standpoint to aggressively meet the uh, intersected needs of a specific community. So those two things are super important. And the last thing then is you've got to fund the whole deal, right? (laughs) So how do you fund it? Well, you're going to have to develop uh, assets in terms of people, finances, and facilities by which you can leverage to generate for-profit income. So the way to think about it is basically like a three legged stool or or think about it like an American football team, Josh. There's yeah. offense, defense, special teams. You can't win a big game unless you've got all three teams functioning at a very high level and synergistically. And that's what mm. we do in the 21st century. And what we advocate, you say, how do you actually get beyond rhetoric to results in an underserved community? Yeah. You're going to have yeah. to develop three separate teams all playing the same game. Uh, for the same reason. The offense, if you will, is going to be yep. your healthy multi-ethnic church focused on spirit, traditional spiritual needs. The second leg, your defense, if you will, is your social justice and compassionate, merciful nonprofit. And the third leg is leveraging assets, people, money, and facilities to also make money, start new businesses, monetize things you're doing, or even if you own property, beginning to rent it and generate income. And so through ties and offerings, grants and donations. And for-profit business income—that's what will keep that organizational sustainable long-term.
0: Mm. Yeah, it seems really important that we can't just rely on ties and offerings anymore. That there's, you know, something that we we need to fund mission. Um, have you seen uh, the difference between people that are relying on ties and offerings and people that have a diversity of income? Have they been able to see uh, multi-ethnic congregations, people coming in and worshiping, working together uh, in a way that people that rely on tithes and offerings haven't been able to see? Uh,
1: I mean, yes and no. So I, I would say it's not that either you've s- seen it or you've not seen it, but I would look at it along the lines of a spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when I was in the mega church, you know, five thousand white Republican suburban nights, et cetera, that church was heavily engaged in mission, uh, certainly foreign and even local mission. Yeah. Um, and so, I wouldn't take anything away from that. Now, having said that, a little further down the road, in terms of continuum or spectrum, that mission, even at a local level, was partnering with people not like them. Uh, right? And so you say, okay, that's good, but it's kind of at a distance, right? It's Mm. almost like this idea that of a bridge, we're on one side of the bridge, other folks are on the other side of the bridge. So we'll cross the bridge for a day to go clean up a neighborhood, but then we go back across the bridge and we take a shower and wipe our hands of all the dirt we got into. Mm. So in other words, there, there is a there's a positive, but there's also a a negative, a perception that it's more, the relationship is a little more transactional than it is relationship. And it's a little bit more from a distance than it is in terms of proximity, Yeah, right? And so that starts to undermine that credibility a little bit uh, over a period of time. People are gonna say, hey, that's great for a day, but how come we don't see you 364 days of the year, you know? So, So, and so that's one thing. And the second thing is, uh you don't have um uh, kind of the uh, if i can say it like this the great white hope here comes the great white hope ri- riding in to save the community but again at arm's length uh with a different power dynamic working and bringing bringing their resourcing to a community not necessarily through a community yeah in an incarnational way and again so you know god uses it all right uh, but is there a better way to do it? That's the question. It, okay, yeah. great. That's awesome. We want to serve, we're engaged, blah, blah, blah. But is there a greater way to do this incarnationally yep. and with the people of a community like Christ did in Philippians 2, emptying ourselves or leveraging any power, position, or privilege that we might otherwise have to go down and push others up uh, in an incarnational way? And I think that's where getting to, to do that realistically, I mean, very pragmatically from a financial standpoint to actually live with people in a community as a collective church. It means Hmm. you, the more people that join that church, potentially it costs you money. Yeah. see, That's what we learned in the, in this, when you got a congregation that relies on ties and offerings, you, you, you basically, whether you realize it intrinsically or extrinsically, um, you have a metric and you have an understanding and the whole system is built on, on the more people that join our church, we make money. Right. Okay. But, yeah. but that's not true in the inner city. That's not true in under-resourced communities. The more people that join, they might cost you money. And I would suggest that's going to be true for the entire American church, not just hmm. urban or under-resourced areas. I'll give you a perfect example. I'm working with a suburban church on a turnaround. I've been leading that church uh, for 10 months now in a different city, different state. Uh, that church is losing $35,000 a month on average. Uh, and, uh, so we're having to turn it around with the principles I'm talking about. Now I literally just did a deep dive the other day into their finances over the last 10 months, as we turn this church around, we've lost 76 giving units, Hmm. but we've gained 68. (laughs) Okay. So we're almost equal in terms of how many giving units have been lost almost equal in terms of how many have been gained. But here's the difference. Those And this is a suburban church relying on tithes and offerings historically. The 76 people that have left gave uh, $41,000 a month, which equates to about $570 per person a month. Yeah. 68 we've gained. They give just over $5,000 a month. Hmm. And the average gift is about $70 a person. Now, that's because of generational, uh, uh, shifting generational attitudes towards giving. It also has to do with diversity. So, yep. the more diverse you are, you can expect less. And so, the ratio then is one to seven. Hmm. So, for every one white 68 year old who's a consistent giver who leaves your church, dies, moves to another city, whatever, takes the money with you're going to need seven to 10 others to replace that giving. And you can't, it's unsustainable because the money you're going to have to spend to get those seven to 10, you'll, you'll never catch up. It's like a hamster in the wheel. And that again, is why you've got to develop this, uh, you know, from a financial standpoint, let alone viability in terms of reaching all people, not just some in the 21st century.
0: Yeah. So what does sustainability look like then? How do we get to, to a place of sustainability? Um, we talk about it a lot, but what does it actually look like? Um,
1: well, basically it looks like what I'm talking about. I literally tweeted somebody yesterday cause somebody, uh, a friend of mine actually, uh, he said that, Hey, did you know, 70, whatever percent of multi-site, uh, churches are sustainable in three are self-sustaining in three years. Well, I pushed back on that. I said, it depends on your definition Yeah. because what the American church, um, uh, what the American church, when church planning networks, the whole church planning industry, if you will, when it talks about sustainability, it's not using a business definition. Yeah. Um, the definition is basically let's just say uh, a ministry comes out of the ground, uh, a church is, uh, uh, you know, three years into it, and they go, oh, now you're self sustaining. What they mean is at that, that three year mark, if you held up a camera and took a selfie, of the people coming to the church in terms of numbers, the money that they're giving and the budget, the money being given by X number of people is covering the church's budget. And then the American church says you're self-sustaining. That is not true. As I said yesterday, what on, on Twitter, and I questioned this guy in a positive way, but I'm like, okay, I but not what happens if your big donor walks out the door? Yep. What happens if four people move out of the, you know, consistent giver? What happens if you're renting a space and all of a sudden they double the rent? You're not so self-sustaining at mm. all at three. That's just like a selfie, that in that exact moment everything being equal. So the fact is there's all these dynamics that are going to change in any startup organization, etc. And that's why, just like in the business world, you don't put all your stock in Coca-Cola, right? right? You've got to diversify your portfolio. And that we call leveraging assets to create multiple streams of income. So self-sustaining, is, is, by definition, is the ability an organization has to basically replicate itself over time. Mm. And, And the way the church has done that historically is tithes and offerings and even like people dying and leaving you a big estate or whatever. Right. OK, well, in the future, that's not going to be the way it is. This is what sustain- sustainability has to do with. For instance, uh, if I own, let's say I own a, a, a second home, uh, uh, you know, or uh, and, and, and I rent it through Airbnb. All right. Yeah. And let's say I got a $2,000 mortgage and I rent that property every month for $3,000. I'm paying the $2,000 with the rent money and I'm pocketing $1,000 so I can do other things. That's sustainable because that rent home, as long as I keep it up, of course, yep. that thing's going to rent for the rest of, you know, forever, right? You yeah. know? So in other words, and it's going to pay its own bill and I don't have to do a thing other yeah. than obviously keep the house up and advertise it same way with a church. So, so a, bringing all this to home, this would be, so I already mentioned the three legs of the stool, you get ties and offerings, grants yeah. and donations and for-profit income. The combination makes you sustainable, but here's a very specific target that I encourage churches and nonprofits to work towards, but take a mortgage. Uh, it Let's assume your church has a mortgage. Could you make enough for-profit income to cover that mortgage? So in our yeah. case, we have a $16,000 mortgage, all right? We are up to about twelve dollars or $13,000 a month in rental income. Hmm. Okay. And so we leverage the space we have to generate about 12 to 13,000 a month, uh, and two contracts alone are long-term and they equal 11,000 alone, just those two contracts. And then we do some other things. All right. If we get to 16,000 and I, I prove, you see what I'm saying? This model now we're sustainable because I, if my ties go up, down, it doesn't matter. My mortgage is paid, which is the other than salaries, you know, that can be a big thing. Um, so That's kind of the idea of sustainability is we have business, ongoing business that is generating income. And and if ties and offerings are low or high or if a big giver says, I don't like how you're, uh, you know, trying to uh, make sure minorities, if you will, are in this church or whatever. or I don't like that you just hired, you know, OK, and that guy basically threatens to leave your church if you don't listen to him. Well, then you're able to look that person in the eye and say, God bless you, go in peace. I don't need your yeah. check. You yeah. know, and yeah. I, and and what that means is I'm not going to compromise the vision mm. to keep your money in the church. Yep. Yeah. So all that is contained in this idea of sustainability and a shameless plug, but I wrote a book about this published by Baker in 2019 called The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, uh, why tithes and offerings are no longer enough and what to do about it.
0: Yeah, that's good. Can you can you talk a little bit about uh, what church has seen as good stewardship of finances and resources, and uh, the difference between that and then the parable of the talents, of what Jesus says? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, and again, it, it's in that <laughs> that book. But
1: Ameri- the American church sees uh, uh, good stewardship typically as three things. And by the way, I agree with all these three things. I'm just saying it's something more, Yeah. but number one, it's, we have to, to take care of the assets God's given us. So God has given to this church, this building, we got a hole in the wall, we got a pothole, the roof leaks. Okay. We've got to maintain uh, adequately and with excellence, you know, what God has given to us. So manage what God has given to us, manage it. Well, Number two, we have to accurately record the donations we receive, right? We've got to be precise yeah. with that. We, we get this money. We got to record it. And then thirdly, we have to clearly communicate to our donors how we're spending that money. Hmm. So those three things typically define stewardship in the American church. Again, I agree with all that. Keep doing it. But in the Bible, if we're being very, very uh, exegetically sound, none of those three things is what Jesus, in a sense, said to do in the parable of the talents he defines good stewardship is in the parable, which most of your listeners probably are familiar with. You gave me five, here's your five, and I made you five. Yep. You gave me two, here's your two, I made you two. Jesus said, well done, good and faithful steward, if you will, or servant in that time. In other words, the people that stewarded the assets, they didn't just manage it, they actually leveraged it to generate even more. Hmm. One guy sat on his asset. as I like to say. One guy (laughs) sat on his asset, right? And in fear, if you think about it, he just managed it. He buried it in the ground. He was afraid maybe of a bad investment or risk or it getting stolen. But rather than faith, in faith, in fear, he sat on the asset. And he's called a wicked, lazy steward. The American church is literally sitting on billions and billions (laughs) of dollars of buried assets in the ground. Churches that sit empty, buildings from Monday to Saturday, that's all... Pre-COVID as well, worse now, a church with 65 members, $2.5 million in the bank. Uh, Nobody's getting saved. The community's not being engaged. But by golly, every one of them is so proud to tell you how much money they have in the bank. Uh, it's, It's a church that owns 10 acres of land, 20 acres of land. They've owned it for 10 years. That land's just sitting there doing absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at least you could leverage this is Jesus. Take the, take the one thing away from somebody that doesn't know what to do with it. Give it to somebody that knows what to do with it. Right. You could take that land and, and rent it long-term to a commercial developer, generate income for your church. Uh, you know, a lot of times churches sell that stuff. I'm like, don't sell your assets, leverage them, you know? Yeah. Uh, but having said that, that's the answer response to your question. Good stewardship is not merely
0: managing what you have. It's, it's leveraging what you have. To generate even more. Mm. Well, you know, as I, I I lead my mission agency, as we're looking at going out and trying to see the kingdom come in all of life, um, we want to see Jesus worshipped. Um, there's a couple of, of things that this brings out for me. Uh, number one, you know, in in missions, we've had this uh, this people group. Uh, demographic that the gospel will flow along the lines of you know common culture, common ethnicity, common language. Um, so it's a homogeneous group that the gospel flows through, um, and so we we talk about those those people groups and we go and try to proclaim the gospel and let the kingdom come in the that people group. Um, one of the things that I don't think that that is working anymore is especially in the urban setting where there is. Uh, and multi-ethnicity, multicultural aspects of an urban setting. Um, is this people group con- concept, this homogenous group concept? One, does it reflect the diversity of the kingdom? And two, wh- what does it bring up for us? And is there a new way, a way that that missions needs to think to see uh, the kingdom diversity? Happen within a in a church planting movement.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, such a great
1: question. The the key w- the word that keeps coming to my mind is, and I'm sure at all nations and uh, and people are aware of this is incarnation. Right, yep. Christ became incarnate. He brought the gospel to people. Not, uh, I'm sorry, he he didn't bring the gospel to the world, if you will. He brought it through the world. He didn't bring it to a people group, namely the Jews. Yeah. He became incarnate as a Jew and brought the good news through that culture. He ate like a Jew, slept like a Jew, talked like a Jew, in fact, became Jewish. Paul does the same thing. That's why his name switches from Saul to Paul. Yeah. He's so incarnate with Gentiles. He, they call him by his Gentile name, not his Jewish name. Yeah. Uh, I feel like over 25 years, I've kind of become like that as well, both personally and corporately with our church here in the uh, urban center of Little Rock because I tend to think more now uh, like a person of color uh, than I do a white person. Just In other words, my first blush, I, I evaluate things. I believe I'm going to say 85%. Yeah. I probably start 85% in my brain like a person of color versus a white person because I'm so, if you will, you know, involved incarnate over 21 to 25 years here in the inner city. So all that's to say is that the you know you've got the old pattern from say the 1800s uh where you know british missionaries went to africa and they didn't just bring the gospel you know they brought it to the culture and they brought their own culture with them right, right. Yeah. so obviously we're hopefully we're past that in terms of mentality but as i was mentioned earlier even a well meaning uh you know majority culture church doesn't necessarily have the cultural intelligence to just show up in the inner city or even in a partnership way, uh, you know, to to actually do vibrant, long term, credible work. Uh, and I and even in my own city, I've seen uh, white suburban churches try to do it. They're here for seven, eight years, then they leave. It's just very difficult now again. So becoming incarnate, which means I, it's going to which number two means in terms of church planning movement, we've got to plant and establish Healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse, socially just, culturally intelligent, and financially sustainable churches in the urban centers. Um, and that by definition, which is on our website at mosaics.info, among other things, we're talking about equity, sharing of mm. responsible authority. It's it's not, you know, a, a white church with a bunch of diverse people in the pews. Yeah. So that's number one and to live that. Number two, we've got to make a long-term commitment. We can't just go do this because it's, you know, somehow you think it's cool. You'll get blown out of the water or or culturally relevant. Even you'll get blown out of the water. You have to understand the biblical, the theology, the biblical mandate and the theology uh, of what it is we're talking about, because that passion, that understanding that, uh, you know, Christ prayed that we would all be one. John 17, modeling the church after Antioch and Acts 11, a multi-ethnic church, not yeah. Jerusalem, which is a homogeneous church. Um once that vision and understanding of a biblical mandate gets in your belly and your bones, that, that becomes calling and passion. And then through prayer, patience, and persistence, you live that out not only three to seven years, but over 10, you know, 15 to 20 years Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of sustainability, we talk about you're not seven to 10 years in these situations is survival financially to stability and another seven to 10 from stability to sustainability. I I can speak that now with, uh, (laughs) Uh, experiential knowledge, literally we're celebrating our 20th anniversary in uh, in about three weeks from this podcast. And, you know, I feel like we are at about an 85% mark on mm. true sustainability, maybe 90. Uh, we're not quite there, but we're real close. And, um, but it's taken 20 years. Uh, so the point is building that healthy multi-ethnic community, having the right expectations, you got to play a long game being willing to commit yourself and that work to, again, the long game of, say, a 15 to 20-year period. And it's not like you don't see fruit along the way, but there are no short-term, there's no silver bullets in this work. This kind, if you will, only comes out through prayer and fasting, which is why there's no manual for it. And all of that time is you're going to, in the posture of a listener and of a learner asking good questions in the early years, onboarding people to staff and and through volunteers um, who are from the community, who can speak the language of the community, who can educate you on the community. And then in partnership together, you advance collectively uh, to actually meet critical needs in that community in a synergistic way. Mm. All of these are part of that response to the difficult nature. And yet the, the opportunity that exists uh, in the urban centers, under-resourced communities, for churches like I know, All Nations wants to see established.
0: Yeah, you know, I, you know, one of our our workers went down to uh, Guatemala about 20 years ago, worked with a, a refugee population from the civil war, uh, you know, a Mayan ethnic population in the middle of the mountains that the government just dropped them off and said, here, try to try to live here. Um, and so as, as he established schools um, and, and did some things, one of the things that I really love about what he has done now is that the school that he established, right now the principal and all the teachers are from the local community. He's not bringing in a, a lot of people from the outside. It's actually grown up from the inside and that then this is their thing now it's not something that is an outside thing so you know it took him you know 15 20 years to be able to establish all of this and to do it but it was the long-term play and now the whole community has actually started to thrive and grow because they're taking ownership and control and then they have the power in the middle of it and saying yes let's point to jesus um as the hope for our community. Yeah. You know,
1: uh, it's interesting. You're, you're kind of on this, this, this line of thinking and topic, because I've thought about this and, and seen positive and negative in this regard over, over the years, but there's this kind of, in my opinion, an erroneous, uh, statement that is often made, uh, even if people believe it, it can be kind of a shock factor, or even if they believe it, it's not well thought through in my opinion, and what that is is hey the community has enough resources to solve its own problems mm. like the people that already live there they already have the understanding they they already have the capacity they already have uh the ability to solve their own problems and typically that kind of thinking is uh, you know spoken against white people and it's it's spoken against the rea- the the whole idea of the great white hope right where we're going to yeah. come in And we're going to tell you how to fix your problems. We're going to, you know, or we bring our resources, but we're going to control those resources. Okay. So I understand the emotional pushback uh, against that. I totally get it. But having said that, it's a both and. Because on the one hand, if the community, so to speak, has enough capacity, resourcing, understanding to solve its own problems, we should legitimately ask, then why haven't they solved them? Okay, now you can talk about historic wealth gaps, income inequality, race, structural racism, etc. Yes, all that's in play. Okay, which though, that's why you also need white allies, and you need people from the outside, take it out of ethnicity and race for a moment, uh, which, by the way, I don't believe in race, I believe one race, the human race with many yep. ethnicities. But i um, When I came to uh, Little Rock in 1993 for a a large church in the suburbs, 2,000 folks that grew to 5,000 over the next, uh, you know, eight years. um, These people, the the way that youth ministry was run, there was a certain mentality and it was established here. Okay. And and just one very uh, part of that mentality was. Well, you know, it's just what happens. Kids leave our youth ministry, they go up to the University of Arkansas and they join fraternities and they get drunk and they party and they do all the stuff that you do in a fraternity because they become a member. And then a few years after they get back, they kind of get they get right again. And then they're they're kind of walking with God, what have you. Okay. That was just docile acquiescence. They just assume that. Well, I was from the outside. I was from the West Coast and and i brought another guy with me from the west coast well in the west, at the time in the west coast if you were a, a christ follower as a kid coming out of a youth group you didn't join a fraternity yeah you didn't do that right um and um because you know you involved yourself in christ centered ministry and all that and you you came out if you will and was separate from that now yeah. so because we were from the outside we were able to change that that understanding because they didn't see it. So in other words, so principle like the fish in the fishbowl, there's you, you can't see something else. And I I will tell you, frankly, it's the same way. Me coming to this city, I lived here eight years. And then in 2001, I come to the inner city and start this church. Well, a lot of us from our team uh, over the years, were not from Little Rock. I brought a bunch Mm -hmm. of people, not from Little Rock here to the inner city, but partnering in legitimate, responsible sharing of authority. With people from this community, we've been able to do something pretty special here. And Mm -hmm. and again, if you're trapped in race, you know, all the things that are in the city, the poverty, the racism, the income inequality, and you're like a fish in the fishbowl, those resources might be there, but they need some gasoline, you know, like to pour on the fire. And that, and so it's a both and, but I didn't come in here and go, hey, I'm going to tell you all how to do this. I've got money, whatever, which I didn't but even if I did, (laughs) I'm going to control how it's spent. No, no. I came in, you know, like Christ in humility and obedience. And, and so I think it's truly beyond all the emotion and the rhetoric, it's really a both end. You're going to have to have some people outside Mm -hmm. to demonstrate to people inside that you don't have to live like this. There's another way. And once they capture that vision, that's when they, all of a sudden, all that resourcing uh, comes out. I was literally with an African-American. We're building out uh, 15,000 square feet in our warehouse to uh, open up a new event center and our, our uh, primary sanctuary. Literally three days ago, they're putting up walls and drywall and all that. And, and an African-American member from the community, it's been in our church for a number of years. He said, Mark, I got to be honest with you. I never did believe you, even though I'm here with the church. You said <laughs> we're going to do this and someday this and someday that. And he goes, I always thought there is no way that's going to happen. And he goes, but now I see it. And he's obviously he's thanking me yeah. and you know saying you did it. And he's talking about like 10 years ago, you were saying this. I'm like, there's no way. And here we are 10 years later. Uh, so he was verifying, you know, if you will, that uh, I could tell you story after story. But the point is, we from the outside have done it in partnership with those on the inside. Right. And in my right. opinion, that's how it works. you got to have
0: mm. both, not either or. Yeah, I think that's that's really good that we actually have to say to the to the fish that you are actually swimming in water. This is what water is. Um, So because they don't recognize it. Um, And so as we go in, one of those things that's helped me out a lot um, and has gotten me to to realize the assets that I have personally is is a good coach and coaching mm-hmm. is is really good and what i love about good coaching is we're ask they they listen they ask the right questions and they know how to point us to the right resource uh to really solve our problems and mm-hmm. coaching does that so as as outsiders that want to incarnate on the inside what's is good coaching good what does it look like to ask good questions to listen well to see what is uh in that community so that we could point them in the long run to the resources and the things that they have so that they can take part in that and we could work with people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, in answer to that when you say coaching, I think two two ways. One is the coaching of, let's just say someone like me um, uh, in our organization or other coaches in our organization being hired to coach a church planner trying to establish a healthy, multi-ethnic, just sustainable yeah. church. So that's let's just call that more, more vocational coaching. And I would suggest the people hundred percent people need that. They, I mean, you're gonna work that that's gonna help you work smart, uh, not hard, avoid critical mistakes, gain cultural intelligence. Uh, it's gonna save you, you know, even if you were committed, it's gonna save you five to seven years or three to five years of mistake after mistake. So that that type of coaching, those types of church planners or leaders, 100% need experienced vocational coaching. And, and, and a little corollary, lots of church planning organizations provide coaching on all, if you will, the nuts and bolts of bringing a church up out of the ground. But we, Mosaics, often gets hired supplemental to that. Like, I don't want to coach you and go, hey, you need a website. Or you know, right. or yeah. I, I don't yeah. want to coach any of that. But what we coach is that unique, additional p. It's like the sixth sense. It's like the ESP, like the the horse whisperer, right, or whatever. Mm. We're mm. gonna we're gonna specifically add to that type of coaching, um, based on our 20, 25 years of experience uh, around the the issues we're talking about today. So number one, the vocational side. Now, I think what you're really though asking is. Uh, it, it, how do you listen well, right? How do you yeah. come alongside people within the community and gain understanding? And, and one way not to do it is put somebody on the spot. Like you you talk to an African-American and go, hey, man, you know, make that person feel like you're trying to, number one, short cut your own learning experience. Like, just give me the answers I need so I can go do my thing <laughs> in, a, in a coffee, let's say. Yeah. Uh, or you're not trying to put that person on a pedestal as if they speak for the entire African-American community, right? Because like all communities and cultures, they're not monolithic. So um, avoiding those two mistakes, looking for the silver bullet in a quick conversation, uh, like tell me what to do and or uh, positioning someone to feel like they got to speak for the whole uh, group. What you want to do is be honest, have humility and uh, and ask the questions that come to your mind. How I got into this without a long story is basically in 1997, I w- I started listening before listening was cool. And I didn't know I was doing it. But I was leading a youth network in the city, uh, youth pastors meeting once a month just to help hang out, fellowship, whatever. And I'd met a few African-American youth pastors over several years. And then one day I looked around and realized they never come to this meeting. Hmm. And so I literally called four of them and got two or three other white youth pastors and spent a half a day with them. And the whole purpose, I had one question. Why don't you guys come to this meeting? Hmm. That was it. Like, and it wasn't asked bad. I was like, you know, I know you guys are doing youth work. You know about this meeting, but why? Well, that was the first time in 1997 I heard the word bivocational. Hmm. Like, I didn't know they're going, well, we can't come because it's in the daytime and we have other jobs. Like, what? (laughs) What do you mean? I thought you're a youth pastor. Well, I am, but I also... I but the church can't pay me enough, so I do this. Okay, I had no idea. Uh, it was when I learned how in the African American church typically does not approach student ministry the way a white say suburban church would do, and I won't go into it for sake of time. But all of a sudden, just in those four hours, I was being humble. I was being honest. I was asking an honest question. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like somebody turned on the learning learning jets, you know, and I'm just soaking that up. And then the, each, each time I learn something, it leads to another question. So then I explore that question. And eventually you, you asked enough questions where in your brain you start formulating how do we overcome these obstacles? How do we meet these challenges? And again, not everybody can do this, different personalities. You always you know, need kind of an ENF, ENTP type person on a Myers-Briggs or uh, those design developers on a Bob Beal role preference inventory um, who who can think intuitively and conceptually and aggregate that information to then determine, okay, how can we overcome obstacles? How can we meet these challenges? How can we become more user-friendly, et cetera, et cetera, which is what we did. So, the coaching, if you will, what you need. And and of course, CCDA and John Perkins way back in the day. And Dr. John Perkins is a very dear friend of mine. And I've talked to him about this subject before. Um, They, they, the idea of, uh, oh, what's it called? The R word um, moving into the community. Like you've got to move in relocation, Mm -hmm. the principle of relocation. Like I'm a white guy, live in the suburbs. I got to move into the inner city. If I'm going to have any impact, Um, that has, that has been good and it's not been good because if you don't move in there with cross-cultural intelligence, blah, 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 you actually make things worse. Dr. John Perkins, if he was on this call, he would say relocation was, is never, was never meant to be a litmus test. (laughs) Um, and so, so the point is, is that's, that doesn't mean if I'm going to listen well, be incarnate, I've got to live in the community. Uh, I've had that validated by African-American pastors here. I don't live in this community because my family is already established elsewhere in the city, but we relocated an entire church. We relocated an entire mentality. I, I, my whole life is spent every morning and all night, you know, here in this community with people and what they, what they're, what people in a community are looking for is your heart. Yeah. You could actually live in a community and not have a heart for the community. Mm, You could mm. live not in the community and have a heart for the community and people, they're going to judge you by your heart, by your longevity, by your humility, by your honesty. And I can't tell you how many times just my own personal life. And I'm so thankful for this because I've had so many people from the community through the years. They'll they'll say this. Well, I don't always agree with Mark or I don't, but I've never doubted his heart. Mm. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And, and so you lead with your heart in humility and in honesty. Those three H words to be a good help people remember, uh, humility, heart, humility, and honesty. Ask the questions. Don't set people up uh, it, like we already talked about, but then soak that information in. And you at some point, you can't just keep learning. You have to act on it. yeah And that requires faith, right? You take a step and uh, and and see what happens, and you know you 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 inch out in a couple of ways. Then you got to pull back, reassess. Then you got to go forward, and it's three steps forward, two steps back. Yeah, commitment long term is what brings this thing out.
0: Yeah, and I think that there's so many people that that go in, they want the quick fix, and they want to say, "Oh, I did it," and then get out. Um, but it is really about that long term, really discipling, being in the trenches with people. Uh, over the long haul, Um, have you, how have you found that you, yeah, how have you sustained and persevered in that place when hope looks lost, that it doesn't look like it's going to work, it's going to fail? Um, How do you persevere through those things so that we could actually stay for the long haul?
1: Yeah, well, again, you know what that goes back to, Josh, is basically your calling you've got to know deep in the belly of your soul that God is calling me to do this. Um, Because if you don't have that, like, in other words, if you think, you know, I've heard the American megachurch through the years, they'll use the term sexy, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, this is a really sexy, whatever, or, you know, I I don't like that Mm -hmm. term because of all kinds of reasons. But But some people might want to come to the inner city because they think it's, quote, Mm. sexy or cool or or they're going to be able to go tell their white friends. Oh, yeah, man, I'm all into the inner city or whatever, you know. So they've got this that they're doing it. Let's just call it instead of sexy. They think it's cool. Somehow they think it's cool. You know, they might think, you you know, it's culturally relevant or um, politically correct or. All that stuff is like shifting sand, because if you don't know you are called, you'll get blown out of the water because the hits and the requirement of of learning, as we just discussed, of humility, of taking years and years and years to see a dream come true. The only way you you can, in my opinion, the only thing that keeps you in there is, you know, deep in the belly of your soul, this is the spot on the earth. And this is the work to which God has called me. And if yeah. you don't know that a hundred percent, you'll get blown out of the water. Think about Moses, 40 years. What keeps yep. him going? God said, do this, lead my people, yep. take them to the promised land. For Mark DeMoz, what's kept me going? Because in 2001, I, my wife and I clearly, which I won't tell the story for time, clearly heard the voice of God and say, do this. Yeah. Now we didn't know, you know, God always <laughs> says, do one thing. <laughs> Cause if he tells you, you got to do a hundred things, you won't do it. So he, we knew God said, do this. And then the next time we heard God, he said, do this. And he just takes you on this journey. Uh, and if you prove yourself faithful in the first thing, he gives you a second thing and yeah. on and on it goes. But my point is what's kept us in here for 21 years is this is the spot on the earth. And this, uh, and this is the work to which God's called me. And I have zero shadow of a doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, the building that I'm currently in a hundred thousand square foot, former Kmart, um, we started praying for this building because literally there was no other building in the community. Uh, and we knew God had called us this community. Uh, we literally started bringing people over into the parking lot and praying God would someday give us this building in 2005. Hmm. Okay. We have pictures of, 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 that. Um, when we got into this building was January of 2016. Wow. It was 10 years. Now, 10 years, I would submit to you, is like 40 years in the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, How do you keep a people journeying together? Like, if you equate this Kmart to the promised land, because yep. we literally rented a space for 12 years month to month. Mm. We, th- wow. The owners, they tried to rent it out from under us numerous times. Nobody would take it, because eventually the church grew so prominent in the community that it would cause a problem if we got out of there. But the point is, they could have given us 30 days notice at any time in, uh, over, uh, I said, 12, really 10 years. Um, we needed a permanent location in this community. And this was the only place. This, there was nothing else. So my point is, how do you keep a per- people giving, yeah. uh, moving, envisioning, keep walking towards that over 10 years? That's like 40 years yeah. in the Old Testament. But we were able to do it, and the only way we were able to do it is because me and my colleagues, you know, this is the spot on the earth, and this is exactly what Mm. God has called us to do. And what are you going to do? You can't leave it. Then you got to keep going. And people, just like in that, the 40 years in Moses, people are dying off. We had grumbling three times. Large groups of people just absolutely left the church. Mm. You know, I I mean, we had, someday I'm going to write the equivalent story (laughs) because I believe we lived it. Um, but the point is we kept going because you can't go back. Yeah. Like you can't go back to Egypt. There's nothing left for you there. There's no way forward, but forward. Yeah. And the reason you can do that is because, you know, anything short of that, uh, will not end well because then you're stepping outside the will of God for your life.
0: Yeah. And you have to
1: know that. And that's
0: what keeps you going. Uh, That's good. That's really good. A uh, couple quick questions at the end. One, if you could go back to your twenty-one-year-old self, what advice would you give?
1: Hmm. That is a really good, good question. Oh my gosh, what would I say to my twenty-one-year-old self? I think I would say that the next ten years are years where you that you will spend the next seven to ten years. Don't worry about trying to answer problems. Worry about learning what the questions are. Mm. your first seven to 10 years, say 2020 to 30. Sure, God uses you and you do things and and all that you get married, maybe who knows, I mean, you got all these things happening. But I would tell my 21 year old self or any 21 year old listening (laughs) right now, consider the next 10 years as you are going to learn what the questions are. Yeah, you're going to learn about who you are and who you're not. Mm. You're gonna you're gonna find some you're going to see people betray you, so to speak. People who thought you're friends, they're not. Yeah. You're, you're going to you're going to see insecure leaders, and you're going to be impacted by insecurity from people above you. Um, and and my point is, if if you think that's the way it is, then you're going to get discouraged and quit on ministry or whatever. No, expect lots of ups and downs, and consider it all part of a learning curve. Mm. So those twenty that the twenties, all you're doing is learning what the questions are. Again, you're still, you're doing things, God's using you, but at a macro level, you learn what the questions are. And then in your early thirties, now you know who I, who you are and who you're not, for instance. So in other words, some church goes, when you're 23, a church goes, Hey, can you come be our youth pastor? And you go, sure, I'll come be your youth pastor. But then you get in there and you realize there's insecurity. So yeah. eventually, you realize, no. Here's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Yeah. Here's the kind of people I want to work with. Here, and then you bring the what you learned in those 20s, in your early 30s. Now you begin to position yourself correctly uh, in terms of your gifting, your fit. Um, you begin to answer questions from a much more experiential knowledge way versus yep. just a theoretical way. You you eliminate guesses. Uh, and you start knowing, no, this is what we need to do, gaining that confidence. And then in the thirties, that's, that's all about, you know, uh, beginning to execute, um, and getting away from that question stage. But the last thing I'd say this to my 21 year old self, as I'd say to anybody, the years that you're going to change the world. And obviously there's anomalies like, uh, you know, Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, but generally speaking. The, the most, the years that you will be most influential and change the world are going to be about 45 to 70. Yeah. 40 to 70. So, what you're doing from 20 to 40 is all you're doing is positioning yourself for broad influence uh, at, at an exponential level of influence when you hit 40 to 45. And then yeah. you ride that for about 25 to 30 years. And that's what you're really playing for.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's great. That's so good. Um, uh, Anything you've been reading or watching lately that you could recommend?
1: Oh, well, I'd recommend uh, my good friend, Dr. George Yancey's new book on uh, uh, a third way between uh, color blindness on the one hand and Mm -hmm. anti-racism CRT on the other. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend that book. Literally, I think it was released two days ago Mm. but it's called beyond racial division mm. beyond racial division. Uh, again, it's a third way. It's a middle ground between anti-racism CRT and color blindness, uh, mm. it promoting collaborative conversation, mutual accountability. Um,
0: highly recommend that book. Mm. That's great. Yeah. Where could uh, people find uh, your work? What do you want to to let people know about? Yeah, well, for sure,
1: Um, the first thing I'd say, I'm easy to find on the internet, our our network is Mosaics.info, M-O-S-A-I-X, like x-ray.info. That's how we work across the board from a variety of programs and services to establish multi-ethnic, socially just, financially sustainable churches, cultural intelligence. So you can learn more about what we do to help folks that might be listening to this. uh, And if we can help you, great. The other thing I'd say is um, don't miss our triennial event, our triennial conference. This will be our fifth one this year, November 8th through 10th in Dallas. Uh, it's it's the epicenter of this movement. In 2019, we had about twelve to 1,300 people, mm. over 100 speakers, 72 workshops, pre-conference. All kinds of stuff goes on at that event every three years. It's like a the entire, anybody who's there has the same heart. So a lot of times we go to other conferences, and that's great. And there's a subset within that conference that might be thinking like this. This entire conference, everybody who's there is thinking mm-hmm. multi-ethnic, economic diversity, cultural intelligence, socially just, financially sustainable, mm-hmm. and denominations, networks, etc. cetera. Everybody's there. So don't miss that event. Uh, you can uh, learn about that uh, on our website, but mosaicsconference.com, M-O-S-A-I-X, conference.com. Uh, is the place to buy tickets, group tickets, become a sponsor. Uh, But again, it's only every three years. Don't miss it.
0: All right. That's great. Thanks, Mark. Well, Mark, this was a fantastic conversation. It was really good. I loved it. So thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. You bet, John. Thanks for having me today.